From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uguez, and this is The Explainer. The public interest is is not served. The children's rights are not served. The children's best interests are not served if the uh, contract agency can opt out based upon its belief that its religious practices can trump those interests. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Last week, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a case of a Roman Catholic adoption agency's entitlement to discriminate against gay foster parents. Miami Law's Children and Youth Law Clinic's lawyers Bernard Perlmutter and Robert Latham joined the Friend of the Court brief in the case and are with us to unpack the case. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Bernie and Robert. Good morning. Good morning. Well, in other news, I guess, um, just a note to our listeners that we're recording this on Friday and the election has yet to be decided. Um, but we're going to talk about something entirely different. Um, so before we get to the recent arguments, Bernie, can you brief us on this case? Yes. So this is the case is called uh, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. And it involves a dispute between the city's um, Department of Human Services, DHS, and the Catholic Archdiocese's uh, social service program called Catholic Social Services, which has challenged a city policy that requires any uh, private child welfare agency, secular or religious, to not discriminate against uh, prospective foster families on the basis of, among other things, religion and sexual orientation. And the city has included this uh, prohibition in contracts, and it derives from state law and, of course, ultimately federal law, which now recognizes the rights of same-sex uh, couples to, to marry. Uh, and notwithstanding the contract and the statute and the Supreme Court decision in the case called Obergefell versus Hodges, 2015, the city is arguing in its challenge to this city municipal policy that it has a right to uh, practice its religious beliefs and to refuse to um, recruit and certify uh, gays and lesbians and transgender individuals, couples, I should say, um, from its own pool of prospective foster parents. And that's essentially what the case is about. It's a clash between uh, their assertion of their rights under the First Amendment to exercise their religious beliefs and practices versus the rights of um, LGBTQ uh, individuals wanting to take children into their homes and foster them. Okay. Um, Robert, let's talk a little about the front of the court brief that that was filed. What were the pillars of, of that brief? I don't know because I didn't file that brief. We'll let Bernie handle that one. Um, but but I, I can talk about kind of how I see this case and how it arose in the foster care system in general. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. All right. So so the, the case, as Bernie said, is largely about non-discrimination clauses in government contracting and whether a state can require a contractor 
broadly to to adhere to a non-discrimination clause that goes against that contractor's religious beliefs. Uh, the, the, the big questions that come out of the case are going to be, does the state have to make individualized exceptions? What are the circumstances in which the state um, can, can, can require a contractor to, to adhere to these kind of provisions? Um, and, and what level of uh, government interest is the state going to have to show to require a contractor to, to essentially, in their, their view, violate their own religious beliefs? Um, what was not surprising to me at all is that this came out of the foster care system. Uh, private religious agencies and the government have been operating in this world side by side for 200 years in America and not always peacefully. And, and so early on in the foster care system in the 18 and 1900s, uh, the foster care system wasn't a system at all. It was largely private organizations, philanthropic organizations, religious organizations who ran um, boarding houses, orphanages, and other programs that would help people in their community. In the early 1900s through the mid-1900s, there was a big explosion of social work principles, national organizations, federal agencies that that viewed child welfare as part of the government and began expanding out into those into those worlds and, and working side by side with these agencies. And, and it really was in the 80s and 90s where the government side of child welfare exploded um, and, and took over a lot of, a lot of this work. And then in the nineties, when we start seeing kind of neoliberal principles of privatization, where the government said, just kidding, we don't want to take on all this work. We're going to turn around and contract it back out to agencies that had been doing it for a very long time. So, so, so the child welfare system has kind of had these giant swings between public and private over the years. And, 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 there's always been a tension between whether it is charity work or whether it's government work. Um, there is a fantastic book by Catherine Rempf at the University of Missouri called Raising Government Children that anybody who's interested in this should definitely look at. Um, the other thing I want to say is that the, the, the child welfare system is no longer small little organizations or, or churches doing work kind of in the community. It is now a multi-billion dollar industry that is highly regulated just like any other. And, and that's where this tension arises. But you're saying that the, the private agencies operate differently within that foster care system, correct? They, they have historically brought their own views to the foster care system. That is, that is absolutely true. Um, the, the, the foster care system has actually a long history of discrimination in it. The early uh, philanthropic organizations worked with particular populations. They worked with Catholic families. They worked with Jewish families. Um, early in the child welfare system, there are most child welfare agencies doing work in the communities were for white children only. Uh, black children were largely excluded. Um, so, so the private agencies have always brought their own agenda. And it wasn't until the regularization of the child welfare system through kind of the state that we started seeing tensions where, where the, the agencies wanted to do the work, but on their terms. Okay. And, and how are the, uh, not just in, in Pennsylvania, but in the whole uh, system, how are LGBTQ kids treated and how are LGBTQ parents treated? In 2019, uh, there was a study that came out that said that about 30% of kids in the foster care system identified as LGBTQ. 
and 5% of kids in the foster care system identified as transgender. And so if, if you think about what we know about people in the general population, that's nearly three times as many identifying as LGBTQ and five to six times as many identifying as trans. So, so LGBTQ kids get, get brought into the foster care system at significantly higher rates uh, than, than their non-LGBTQ uh, peers. Uh, they, they come in for a lot of the same reasons that any other kid comes in because their, their, their parent has a substance abuse problem or domestic violence. Uh, but they also come in to the system because of reasons specifically around their identity. They come out to a family, to their family and their family pushes them out. There's abuse, there's sexual abuse around their, their gender identity and, and, and sexual orientation. And, and so, so it's, it's, they experience everything every other kid does plus more. Once they're in the system, LGBTQ kids have significantly worse experiences. Um, they are rejected from foster homes, um, either, either upfront before they're placed there when the foster parent says they won't, they're not willing to work with them because of their identity, or once they get there and the foster parent realizes, uh, that they identify as gay or trans and then push them out. They experience physical and sexual abuse at higher rates. Um, they experience psychiatric hospitalization. Um, uh, placement into criminal justice systems, arrests at higher rates, um, and they have significantly lower rates of reunification back with their families or adoption. So, so the experiences of LGBTQ kids um, are really extremely bad, and and so it's important for agencies to be willing to work with them and to have specialized training and to, and to really be able to support them well. Um, on the flip side of your question, uh, LGBTQ adults both both parents of the kids, right, and also prospective foster parents um, have also experienced a lot of discrimination historically. Uh, uh, historically, uh, states have limited adoption to only married couples. Um, that's not largely the case anymore, but historically it was, which by, by effect uh, barred LGBT or gay and same-sex couples from, from adopting. Florida is notorious for having a specific law that prevented any homosexual in the law's terms um, from adopting. Whether they were married or not, no homosexual shall adopt, it said. And, and that, was, that was found to be unconstitutional. Um, so, so the history of discrimination in the system, uh, especially against LGBTQ people, is, is longstanding and it's extreme. What this case raises is, is a city saying, we're going to not do that anymore. And a, and a, and an agency coming back and saying, no, but it's part of our practice. It's, we, it's so important to us that we can't do our work unless we do it. Mm. Well then Bernie, let's go back to the, the, the amicus brief uh, that was filed. Do you want to talk a little about that? So this is a case that is considered to be, has been called sort of a block blockbuster on the court's docket this year with respect to both religious freedom and also LGBTQ rights. And as you can imagine, there have been, there's been a lot of interest from uh, uh, various segments of both the legal community and religious and non-religious uh, advocacy groups to have a say in, the, in, this, in what, what the court is now going to be deliberating on. And so uh, our clinic uh, joined a brief that was organized by a national organization called Children's Rights, Inc. They're a highly venerated and distinguished uh, children's 
advocacy organization focused primarily on the legal issues confronting children in foster care. And they've teamed up with the national law firm, Miami-based national law firm of Greenberg Trarick. And so the brief that we signed, that we joined, um, is on behalf of child advocacy organizations and members of the Interfaith Coalition for Children's Rights, focused on uh, representing and protecting children's rights. And we are speaking in this brief on behalf of children uh, throughout the uh, nation who will be profoundly, we believe, profoundly and irreparably harmed if the uh, court adopts the position um, espoused by Catholic Social Services that government-contracted foster care agencies have a constitutional right to refuse prospective families based solely on the religious objections to those families. So we're promoting, we are advocating for the court's recognition that the protection of the best interests of the children who are in foster care uh, in foster care systems, seeking placement uh, in foster care, have a right to a diverse pool of safe and loving families. And the position espoused by Catholic Social Services is that uh, they can exclude from consideration from that pool um, through their contract with the city of Philadelphia, uh, LGBTQ prospect prospects for uh, for that um, for that applicant pool, and they demand the right to do so without having to comply with the city's anti-discrimination policy. So our arguments, our brief, which echo many of the arguments of other amici and certainly those of the city, um, are that engaging in prohibited discrimination using taxpayer dollars, because this is not private philanthropy, this is not money that's collected at church on Sunday, but this is money that comes from the taxpayers of, of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia mm-hmm. while performing a delegated role uh, that comes to Catholic so- social services from uh, the sovereign municipal function of protecting and fostering children. Uh, it, the public interest is, is not served. The children's rights are not served. The children's best interests are not served if the uh, contract agency can opt out based upon its belief that its religious practices can trump those interests. And so, no, then so we have a problem with that. And we think that the substantial harm that would be visited upon not just the children of Philadelphia, there are 5,000 children in the care and custody of the city of Philadelphia, uh, which manages a, a public-private system like many states, as, as Robert has described. There are 30 ag- agencies, some secular, some religious, some with sort of a evangelical agenda, others with a sort of an LGBTQ focus and agenda, if you could call it that. Um, that there's no way that the neutral, generally applicable standards that are enunciated in the city's um, um, fair practices ordinance, the state law, and us, of course, embedded in the contract can can be uh, deviated from by Catholic Charities, arguing that it's got a First Amendment right to have its practices uh, exempted, exempting it from the um, from from the city ordinance. Mm-hmm. 
Well, interestingly enough, it was argued uh, on Wednesday, the day after the election, so probably nobody noticed. Um, but it was uh, Amy Com- Com- Comey Barrett's inaugural case. Uh, did there did, was anything in there that struck you as like notable in her first rodeo? Well, uh, one thing that is noticeable is that she got up to speed very quickly. She clearly read the briefs. She was familiar with the record. All of the briefs seemed to be uh, in her swirling in her mind, uh, all from both sides. Uh, she was the last of the nine justices to have opportunities to question uh, the four argument presenters on the two sides of the case. Um, I would say that the tenor and the tone of her questioning was searching. Uh, she didn't tip her hand uh, at at um, what her position would be, as opposed to some of the more strident uh, questions that came from Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh. Um, uh, that were clearly uh, very skeptical about the position espoused by the city of Philadelphia and several of the amici. One thing that's notable is about this case is, and her some of her questions seem to be in this sphere of whether or not it is time to uh, for the for the court to overrule a thirty year precedent on free exercise uh, protections and government. Uh, practices that uh, that religious organizations argue uh, could run afoul of those of those of standards that are, that are enunciated anti-discrimination standards that are enunciated by government. So what what uh, what the Catholic Social Services lawyers are arguing is that this precedent, known as Employment Division versus Smith. Which established a, a a simple rule that if a government uh, uh, law, government promulgated standard is is neutral, in other words, it doesn't evince any uh, hostility or an anima, animus towards a religious organization, and it's generally applicable across the board to both secular and religious uh, organizations or individuals that would be affected by this uh, this this law, then it will be upheld as reasonable. And Catholic Social Services is arguing that it is time to revisit Smith. It is time to overturn it. And what I heard from Justice Barrett was, I'm not quite sure. It's not so fast. It's maybe not time. The time is not ripe to uh, to overturn this 30 year uh, standard and then sort of Nature abhors a vacuum, so there would be a void. What would be the rule, um, and uh, that would result in the absence of an opinion that was actually authored by Justice Scalia, for whom she clerked post law school. So she, there's a, I'm sure there's a very uh, uh, faithful adherence to what she perceives to be the constitutional dimensions of this of this case, but maybe also to her mentor, the originalist, the great originalist Justice Scalia. Uh, any handicapping? So I, I would, uh, based upon questions that were uh, posed by nine justices across the board, my handicapping is that the uh, the challenge will succeed 
uh, the district court granting of uh, the dial of an injunction by the district court in Philly and the Third Circuit's unanimous uh, affir- affirmation of or affirmance of that 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 uh, ruling will be overturned by the Supreme Court of the U.S. But I don't think that the court will get five votes to 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 to, to completely uh, overturn the Employment Division versus Smith precedent. Mm-hmm. So, Robert, is there anything else that's uh, coming up the pike that we should keep an eye on? Uh, you know, will will this decision slop over in, into other other cases? It's it certainly will have if if Smith is overturned, it will certainly have significant ramifications for um, how. This, these public-private partnerships operate in all areas of the law. Um, foster care is one of them, but uh, uh, philanthropic and charitable organizations um, operate in, in lots of other places. And and so you you could imagine um, all, its worst, most extreme version, all non-discrimination clauses being struck down, and 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 that that would change the world significantly. Um, you know, regardless of which way the, this case comes out, uh, one thing I hope that religious organizations um, that are, are doing this type of work realize is is that you you it's very difficult to work with LGBTQ kids on a daily basis when you have a no trespassing sign on the door for LGBTQ adults. So if, if you're not allowing a certain population of people into the work and into into your world for for kids to see as a positive role models and and to see as respected members of your community and your organization um it it is very difficult to send a positive message to those kids and and I do hope that regardless of which way this case comes out organizations look really hard at their own practices and and how those those practices are impacting the kids Great. Well, shall we have that be the last word? I think I think that could be the last word, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, I have some other thoughts, but I, I think we've covered it. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining us. And uh, I hope to see you around soon. I'll bike by your house. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's top-tier hands-on clinics, nine to choose between, from innocence to investor and tenant rights, For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu forward slash academics forward slash clinics.